Do you love American Hysteria? Would you like more of what we give you every week? Consider becoming a patron of our show. You'll get extra monthly episodes, video diaries of my face, updates on things like the coronavirus, and deep dives into things like Ted Kaczynski's possible role in the Tylenol murders of the 1980s, The Exorcist's creepy curse that may or may not be real, and whether lie detectors actually work. You'll also help support us this season and hopefully beyond. So go to the link in our show notes and become one of our sweet patrons. Our sweet Satans. And now, here's the show. This is American Hysteria's Aftershock, where I share with you a story that didn't make it into the main episode. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and today we're talking about school spirit. Whether you spent your teenage years holding handmade signs, singing along to your school's fight song, screaming for the boys bashing into each other on the field, or scoffing at the spectacle from under the smoky, graffiti-laden bleachers, we all know this phenomenon called school spirit. Just think of homecoming, the week-long, quintessentially American ritual of welcoming students back from the joyous summer months and straight into the hierarchy of the American high school popularized by every form of entertainment. A glorification of male sports, of feminine cheerleaders beaming from the sidelines, of kings and queens lording over those who want more than anything to be christened into the title of popular. The fight song plays and everyone's voices rise along with it as if it were some kind of national anthem. And in a way, it is. An anthem for your high school. A patriotism that spreads its roots through our consciousness as we grow into adults. This thing called school spirit is both spontaneous and heavily constructed, cultivated by students themselves, but sculpted by the school administrations that encourage them. To understand why school spirit has come to play such a prominent role in the teenage experience, we have to go back over a hundred years to when the modern American high school was just beginning to form. Before the Great Depression, the lack of child labor laws meant that only a small percentage of American children were enrolled in public education, and almost all of them were rich. By the end of the 1800s, a movement led by thinkers such as Horace Mann had significantly increased the perceived value of and access to public education, and by 1918, all of the United States had enacted compulsory education laws. Mann saw public education as the great equalizer of the conditions of men, meaning that equal access to education could finally start to level the playing field, so to speak. Children born into poverty or discrimination could finally, theoretically, have an equal opportunity to break the cycle and live up to a full potential. Other thinkers of the educational reform era saw public education as useful in a different and, in hindsight, more problematic way. 
educator Elwood Patterson Cubberly believed the expansion of public education could create a more homogenous American identity. And with immigrants especially, public schooling could effectively, quote, assimilate and amalgamate those people to Anglo-Saxon conceptions of righteousness, law and order, and popular government. Cubberly was not alone in seeing public school this way, and many scholars have observed how these citizen training ideals became woven into the fabric of American public education with lasting effects. Some critics have labeled it a form of cultural imperialism and nationalism. Though early school spirit was a product of the kids themselves, it wouldn't be long before high schools began to actively encourage it. And as we all know, once something's endorsed by adults, it's no longer cool. Some student-run newspapers from the 1910s show a growing tension between school administrations, school leadership, and the school body as a whole that sometimes even led to vandalism and riots. School leadership had attached a new meaning to school spirit, one that almost required students to be proud and especially loyal to their high schools. Those who were used to showing critique and dissent, like all of us found under the bleachers, were upset by this demand to blindly follow school authority. But high school pride won out, as we all know. Eventually, children of European immigrants with different ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds started to integrate into public schools for the first time. Extracurricular activities like sports teams were originally organized by students themselves and were usually not directly associated with the school. Some high schools even had fraternities and sororities modeled after the university Greek system, and somewhat nationalistically, they often shared characteristics such as race or class. Taking cues from universities, public school administrations began making attempts to unify the student body. The introduction of organized sports into public schools seemed an obvious way to both encourage unity and enthusiasm for the school, while also teaching children what were seen as ideal values for American citizens at the time, working hard and cooperating with each other, and of course, respecting authority. With that long-term patriarchal emphasis on boys, 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 participation in teams was considered a mandatory exercise in masculinity, and surprisingly, so was cheerleading. Student newspapers from Central Technical High School in Cleveland claim that their very first cheer came from a student named William Downey, who, in the excitement of a football match in 1895, stood up and exclaimed, Slip! Slam! Bazoo! And with that, cheerleading exploded. But it was considered too masculine for women to participate in. What with all that yelling and jumping? As with many pursuits originally reserved for men, World War II took the boys overseas and women filled in their roles. Soon, sports were for boys, and supporting those boys with uncanny pep was the domain of the high school girl. But, of course, not all of them. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Despite often superior talent, black girls were barred from joining squads by their own white peers, leading to protests as well as riots, one which caused the 1969 death of a 15-year-old black boy when he was shot by the National Guard. Since their beginnings, cheerleaders have been a uniquely American phenomenon, one of our biggest American archetypes, and they were effectively designed that way. At newly invented cheerleading camps, squads were given long lectures imbuing them with the idea that they belonged at the very top of the social hierarchy, right below their boyfriends, of course. They were told over and over again that being a cheerleader would mean instant popularity. Interestingly, sociologists tend to agree that the dream of interpersonal popularity is one typically only sought by American high school students, while other cultures tend to value goals like close friendship and strong family ties above being, quote, the middle point of influence among their peers. Of course, our archetype of the cheerleader remains a potent cultural symbol all the way through to the present day. School spirit was seen as a unifying force for a growing student body with diverse interests, and students were encouraged to take pride in their school both on and off campus to glorify the institution and uphold its reputation. In New York, Ithaca High School's student-run newspaper, The Tattler, ran an article about school spirit in 1935 that read in part, quote, In the skeptical words of a newly-come frosh, what's all this rubbish about school loyalty anyway? Loyalty builds great football teams, winning baseball nines, armies that cannot be beaten, republics that stand forever, and successful schools such as the one we want ours to be. All in the name of school spirit. But wait, think. Is this school spirit? Is it good school spirit? Many have pointed out that school spirit began as a sort of training program for patriotism or patriotism's worse and ugly older brother, nationalism. An idea that says, our team is the best and we're going to win. 
knowing what we know about how early 20th century high schools encouraged pride, loyalty, and fierce competition in the name of your high school's glory and your future as an American citizen, the connection to nationalism isn't a leap. In fact, student publications from the early 1900s show how easily the school spirit translated into patriotic spirit when the United States entered World War I. A newspaper article from East Technical High School in Cleveland described a ceremony in the fall of 1917 where students dedicated a new American flag for the school in what could only be described as a pep rally for war. As the huge flag was lowered, it actually covered and engulfed the bodies of all the students, creating potent imagery of the individual becoming part of an arbitrarily assigned role. A student reporter covering the event wrote in part, quote, Truly, I thought, this flag is American to the last thread. For have not North and South, black man and white, toiled alike to make this emblem? Under it, they would live and die. Yes, sacrifice their last ounce of energy that old glory may float forever. Consider that morning pledge of allegiance that we all remember, a required chant in the majority of U.S. states. Though students are, of course, allowed to opt out for moral or religious reasons, many states still require parental permission to do so. In 2017, a Texas student was expelled for refusing to stand and salute Old Glory, and when she sued the school, the state asserted that she had not gone through the proper channels to allow this dissidence. Just last year, an 11-year-old in Florida refused to participate because he said the flag is racist, which led to his arrest. The roots of this pledge that droned through our homeroom's intercoms trace all the way back to 1892, when a pastor-turned-ad executive named Francis Bellamy wrote the words to commemorate the 400th anniversary of, who else, Mr. Christopher Columbus stumbling into North America and inciting decades of genocide to gloss over his mistake. Bellamy was staunchly against the immigration of, quote, races which cannot assimilate without a lowering of our racial standard, and asserted that, quote, the distinctive principles of true Americanism will not perish as long as free public education endures. The phrase, under God, was added during the Cold War to separate us from the godless communists. Training. That's what does it. And training starts in the school each day in the good American way. How you boys and girls safeguard that liberty is your responsibility. Now, to be fair, recent studies on the psychology behind school spirit in high school and college show that it can definitely come with positive effects, reducing feelings of alienation or social isolation among adolescents and young adults, and creating communities that forge bonds and friendships. But this idea kind of tracks with nationalism, too— 
uniting a group that kind of accidentally ended up together, represented by a tough guy mascot that differentiates them from the next town over. An artificial identity in school colors and songs is created and made central to the high school experience, and competition becomes the core value taught to teens. What is referred to by psychologists and sociologists as tribalism, and especially the kind of military tribalism we see in large and small iterations in American culture, was likely developed as a byproduct of agriculture, as there's actually little evidence that hunter-gatherer communities engaged in warfare. Hunter-gatherers were more fluid with their social structure. Humans could come and go as they pleased, leaving one group and joining another. But like a high school or larger a nation, an agricultural community stayed put and had no other choice but to find a way to get along with their growing community. What we call in-groups, those who are not rejected from a community, come in all shapes and sizes. But one way to create them quickly is to have people unite under a certain color of clothing or under a certain shared mascot. But don't worry, because I, too, watched the first several seasons of Friday Night Lights. And I am not here to blur your clear eyes. And I am not here to break your full hearts. And I like believing with my whole soul that my team, my beautiful team, can't lose. I spent high school going to football games and being one of those bad kids under the bleachers, but I secretly liked the fanfare. And there's nothing wrong with a little competition. I am known to be a heated fan. But if we pause to consider the effects of creating an other out of thin air and fighting them like hell, we risk putting competition over compassion. And we risk doing the things that sometimes America does. And inside the competition of the American high school itself, popularity still creates the power structures of a bigger America. As the Beach Boys said, on Friday, we'll be jacked up on the football game and we'll be ready to fight. We're going to smash them now. My girl will be working on her pom-poms now and she'll be yelling tonight. Be true to your school and let your colors fly. Or come and join us bad kids under the bleachers to complain and complain about all these American normies, these conformists. Hey, hey, take it away! Get to be true to your school now. Just like you were to your girl or guy. Be true to your school now. Let your colors fly. Be true to your school. This was American Hysteria's Aftershock. Next time on the show, we're exploring some of those kids you might find under the bleachers or maybe in the art room. That's right, the archetype of the American hipster. And if you want even more great American Hysteria content that's just for you, our secrets, our extra episodes, our video streams, make sure you consider joining our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. American Hysteria's Aftershock is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Co-written by Riley Smith, with script editing by Miranda Zickler, and production by Clear Camo Studios. 
That Beach Boys cover you heard was our very own American Hysteria Team Spirit Anthem by our very own Miranda Zickler and Riley Smith, along with cellist and singer Jillian Walker. Miranda and Jill also play with a fantastic band called Coinka, that's K-U-I-N-K-A, and a side project called Funeral Dove. You can find links to both of those in our show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I'm just going to hit you with one more. Slip, slam, bazoo! You're welcome, and have a great day.